Welcome to Pidcast, the podcast brought to you by the Peddington Society and powered by Pragma Lawyers. Today's guest needs no introduction and we have a meaty topic to get to. So as is customary on the pod, we begin with who is Stephen Davies SE? Um, I'm a lawyer, I practice as a barrister. Uh, I've been in practice for about 30 years. Uh, the last 20 of those are at the independent bar. I've practiced mostly in uh, commercial law um, with about eight years at a big law firm and then I decided to pursue a career at the bar and for that purpose uh, took a job as a, a prosecutor and so did a couple of years in crime, Commonwealth crime and, and what's involved in that. And then I went to the bar, practised in a quite a ri- wide range of areas over the years, initially a little bit in crime but really only sort of white collar type crime and then I suppose moved slowly back to my roots as it were into commercial law. but including uh, acting for uh, media, acting in defamation matters, uh, as well as the usual things that one uh, does in Western Australia, which is largely to do with uh, commercial contracts, commercial disputes. Today we'll be talking about the Religious Freedoms Bill, which are currently at the stage of the second exposure draft submissions being closed. The bill has three aims, but generally speaking, it's to protect certain religious and non-religious actions being taken by a wide variety of individuals and groups. And to you, this bill is centrally about freedom, as I understand it. Well, it's it's put up as a bill about freedom, but it's a, a piece of legislation that needs a little bit of analysis, um, although it doesn't take a lot of analysis to realise the problems that this proposed piece of legislation uh, poses. But in answer to your uh, question about freedom... The starting point uh, really is to appreciate that when you talk about things such as freedom of speech, freedom of religion, we already live in a society that has those freedoms. Unless uh, something is prohibited, you're, you're in a starting place of you have the freedom. So people talk about we need freedom of speech in Australia, which I think is a misconception. We have freedom of speech in Australia subject to some fairly narrow limits, um, one of those being, for example, uh, the law of defamation and how that operates. I call that a narrow limit because, by and large, if you say something that's true, there are no consequences. You're entitled to say something that's true. There are also a range of uh, privileges that, uh, that cover you as well. So, by and large, we have freedom of speech with some limits. Uh, I mentioned the law of defamation, but there's also, of course, the limits on freedom of speech that are consequent upon the existing anti-discrimination uh, legislation, but they are in fairly narrow compass. Uh, you talk about freedom there. How, how do you see freedom interacting with this bill? So you talk there about the additional rights that may come under this bill, but turning to how... how positive right intersects with freedom of religion, without getting into the nitty-gritty of the bill itself, doesn't this bill merely provide a positive right to a religious freedom that we already have and therefore you speak there about the freedom that we already have, uh, but is, isn't this bill really just about putting that in a positive sense and, for example, being in well, consistent with Article 18 of the International Covenant on International and Civil and Political Rights about the right to freedom of religion. Well, we already have freedom of religion in um, in this country. There's not really any question about this. When I said before 
that you look at pieces of legislation that are said to guarantee freedoms or to enact freedoms that we already have and look to see whether in fact what they do is grant additional rights. You can see in this bill that it's not so much about the granting of uh, religious freedom, it's about at one level the protecting of people from consequences of having particular religious beliefs and protecting them uh, from any consequences of expressing those views. We'll go, we'll go to that point then, which is um, one of the other issues from our chat before I understand you have with the bill, which is around the actual intent of this bill and what it's really trying to get to. Religious freedoms and the protection of religious beliefs um, appears to be one part, but in the bill that I've reviewed, there does seem to be this almost sword, not just a shield aspect to the bill. How do you see that intersecting with the rights that are already and the freedoms that are already existing in Australia? Well... I explain that we start from a position where you've got freedom. Um, in relation to freedom of speech, to, be, to take this as an example, the, the principal constraints on freedom of speech are the law of defamation and um, some aspects of the anti-discrimination law. The anti-discrimination law that we already have focuses on, as I mentioned, the broad concepts of race, gender, disability and age. And we have accepted as a society some limitations on freedoms uh, so as to avoid discrimination on those grounds, race, gender, disability and age. This bill is intended to expand the landscape, if I can put it that way, expand the landscape by reference to religious beliefs. Its object is to protect uh, people from the consequences, the various consequences that may arise in their life whether it's employment, education, and so forth, the consequences of holding or expressing uh, religious beliefs. Now, the first thing, and really the fundamental oddity about this piece of legislation, is that uh, what we are doing, or what it appears to be doing, in 2020, in, if you like, setting out uh, an architecture for freedom in this country, an architecture for freedom of speech, an architecture for freedom of beliefs. As the architecture, it is selecting this notion of religious belief. And so uh, in terms of defining, or in terms of understanding what might be protected by the bill, the piece of legislation, if one can imagine, um, if you will, helium balloons and you're holding a bunch of balloons in your hand, with each balloon containing the belief system of a particular religion, and if you look up in the sky at your bunch of balloons, that bunch of balloons represents the, the scope of, uh, of the bill. And in 2020, where I think most people agree Australia is a secular society, it's a very strange architecture to select, uh, supposedly to protect uh, a freedom. And there's, there's a number of reasons for that. Religious beliefs obviously form part of our heritage as a nation, but also a whole lot of political history forms part of our um, heritage. Westminster system of government, representative democracy and so forth. And plainly, um, there are values that are embodied in the various religions that are intrinsically good, perhaps, or, or values that we could all 
in one way or another subscribe to. But the idea of protecting freedoms by reference to a collection of uh, religions uh, is a very odd way to go in a secular society. And I think to illustrate that point around the oddity that can possibly arise, and just to draw on one example, would be around really the definition of what a religious belief is and the uh, infinite circumference or balloons that could be put in the air, so to speak, to, to describe that. And therefore, is one concern that this bill actually has no framework in which it works. It is all-encompassing. Well, one has to be careful when you look at pieces of legislation like this not to be drawn into the sort of Alice in Wonderland world of the legislation and start examining it section by section. The fundamental issue is this. Leaving aside the issues of value systems, these organised religions date from a different time, a different age, by many thousands of years. And I probably should declare here I am an atheist, so this is a particular view I take to the matter. But in the end, um, these religions date from a time when people had a lot more difficulty with the notion of not knowing the answer to something. Uh, one of the functions that these religions served was to provide the answer. Um, what's out there? What happens when I die? Those sort of fundamental questions. And religions in their various ways provided an answer. But two things have happened over the thousands of years since these religions came into existence, or I should say the mainstream religions came into existence. One is there is much more, com much more comfort in society in accepting as, a, as part of your thinking process that there are things we just don't know the answers to. And when you uh, accept, look, there are things we don't know the answers to, you accept that, look, um, there is no answer, no one can give it to me. It's not knowable for whatever reason. And that's a, a level of sophistication in thinking that has happened as our societies have developed and progressed. Once one understands that, there's an emperor's new clothes moment where you realise that without detracting from perhaps some of the good things that religions do, each of these religions in the end is a fairy tale. So why in 2020 would we collect together uh, all of the fairy tales form them into a big bunch of balloons and use that as a structure to uh, outline freedoms in our society at this time. There's a, there's a craziness about the type of approach that's been adopted. And when I say not being drawn into the Alice in Wonderland world of it, I mean, one can go into any number of the proposed provisions of this bill and point out all sorts of a myriad of defects and unworkable aspects, but it's better to stand back and ask yourself the question, why on earth would we do this in any event? We'll get to the unworkability of the bill in a moment, but just in terms of the, the heritage you've sp spoken of in terms of religions, the inherent good that they can do, I think, is acknowledged, and the fact that we are becoming a more secular society isn't one potential reason why this bill is required is because we need to at least maintain the heritage that we have had that has brought us to this point and that by maintaining it we may gain a benefit going forward. Well it's not possible to and nor is it desirable to put down a stake at any particular point in time and say look that's how it is we're going to hold on to that. Heritage is something that evolves and changes and blends together over time. What this bill 
perhaps is designed to achieve or does achieve if it was enacted is to sort of put a flag post in the ground and say that these different things that are called religious beliefs they have some special status some special quality they have to be protected well, whereas the reality is is probably most Australians don't believe in any of these religions and nor really should they I think most people just live their life ignoring them and that's of course the way of the future the organised churches carry very little authority in society anymore and very little influence which of course to my mind is a good thing and that is only likely to uh, continue to be the case and, and become more the case. So why one would put a stake in the ground here and in this way is something that needs to be very carefully examined. So let's then turn to the unworkability, as you put it, of the bill and the unworkable nature of it. What, what parts do you say are, in a very general conceptual way, unworkable? Well, there are really two things. When one understands what this bill is about, you sort of go back to the universal concepts that we have accepted in this society as being worthy of protection against discrimination. So one takes race, gender, disability and age, and as a society we've accepted, most people have accepted that those are fairly universal concepts and that they are worthy of some protection. Um, the result of any protection, of course, is a constraint to some extent on freedom, but there's always a trade-off. The first thing that's, that's really quite concerning about this uh, Act, or proposed Act, is the mechanisms that have been used. Now, the architects of this uh, bill have taken and harnessed the law, the concepts, the language of anti-discrimination on those broad issues of race, gender, disability, nature. They've harnessed it to say, in effect, what we also now need is we also now need those same sort of protections in respect of religious beliefs. Fundamentally, that's a very corrosive and, in my view, dishonest way of trying to prosecute this objective. If you are a person who does not believe that we should have protection from discrimination on the grounds of race, gender, disability and age, then you have to go out and you have to have that debate and make that case. Those in our society who have not got with that particular program that it's desirable and proper to have that sort of protection against a discrimination on race, gender, disability and age, they need to go out and prosecute that if they wish to do so, but they don't. And the reason they don't, of course, is because it's not a winnable fight. What's been done with this bill is to harness the language of anti-discrimination, uh, to some extent the institutions that have, been, um, uh, that have come into existence to protect us from those sort of discriminations, and to use it in a sort of judiciary move uh, to say that we also need these protections in relation to religious belief. Why I say it's corrosive is because if you're going to do something, it's always important to do it in a transparent and straightforward way so that people can actually understand what are we doing here and why are we doing it. And if you don't do it in a transparent and straightforward way, that leads to a general corrosion of trust and confidence in our system of justice. People have to understand laws. People have to have things that they can comprehend and see how they fit together and why. But if you dress something up 
uh, which is really what's happened with this bill, dress up uh, something as being a protection of supposed rights when in fact really uh, it's about the creation of new rights and very um, the rights that would cause really very serious concerns if they came into existence. Um, that's quite corrosive. So that's one aspect of it. The other thing that is objectionable and highly disadvantageous about this act is when you actually, go, if you were actually to go down into the Alice in Wonderland uh, world of this act, you would find that it is completely unworkable in almost every way. And to illustrate that, you only have to observe that this is a bill that protects religious belief with no workable definition of what religious belief actually is. Now, how that is intended to work is anybody's guess. But that's really only the first thing that's wrong with it. There are so many other things um, that seem entirely unworkable if you look at the detail of the bill uh, that the only real consequence of the passage of this bill will be presumably uh, endless, complex and uncertain litigation by uh, those who seek to assert rights under it or those who are being prosecuted uh, for breach of it. So the irony of the bill is that you might get busier for a bill <laughs> that not in favour of. Well, I can't... It's not something I'd give any consideration to when you look at a piece of bill like that. Uh, I've been a litigator for 30 years and... There always seems to be a perennial uh, worry about uh, workflow, but uh, at least in the 30 years I've been doing it, there's never been a day with nothing to do. So each podcast we end with the same question. What does justice mean to you? To me, it means there fundamentally being a level playing field or a playing field that is level as it can be. I'm talking about the playing field on which citizens have their disputes resolved. Um, for there to be confidence in our uh, system of justice, in the administration of justice, as the manner by which disputes between citizens are to be resolved, you need the level playing field. That's a critical thing. It's critical to fairness, but it's also critical to confidence in the system. If uh, you don't have a level playing field, or at least a playing field as level as it can practically be, people lose confidence uh, in the system of justice that we have as the mechanism for resolving their dispute. Confidence, I suppose, is, is all important in justice. If people don't have confidence in it, the whole thing falls apart and people start bringing up their bikey friends to go and sort out their problems, which is what we don't want to happen. And that confidence can only be maintained if the administration of justice is kept in good health. The main thing that, uh, that, that gives rise to risk about health of our system of justice is corrosion. And that's one of the things I spoke about earlier. When you have a piece of uh, legislation that by its structure and architecture is corrosive, corrosive of, I suppose, corrosive of truth, corrosive of uh, honesty in the way things are done, uh, that really poses uh, risk. And that's another reason why I was interested in this particular topic to speak on today. Stephen Davies, SC, thank you.